0: Relationships pose the most difficult detail of life with which we deal. Employer-employee relationships break down, and an employee quits, is laid off, or fired. Husband-wife relationships break down, and arguments ensue, and tragically separation and divorce often occurs. Pastor-congregation relationships break down, and the pastor either senses that the lord is calling him to another congregation or the church calls for his resignation often and sadly a church split occurs parent child relationships break down sadly this many times leads to familiar break a familial break and children and parents never contact one another again cursory research leads to articles that discuss the necessity of good relationships, and this from the secular world. For example, a positive relationship can be shared between any two people who love, support, encourage, and help each other practically as well as emotionally. In no particular order, people in healthy relationships tend to listen to each other, Communicate openly and without judgment. Trust and respect each other. Consistently make time for each other. Remember details about each other's lives. Engage in healthy activities together. And while you don't have to be romantically involved to enjoy the benefits of a healthy relationship, there are various studies on the positive effects a healthy romantic relationship can have to your health. Here are a couple of benefits, or a few benefits, of healthy relationships. Some are specific to romantic relationships, others aren't. Well, you have the benefits of less stress, better healing. I don't know about less stress, but anyway. Healthier behaviors, a greater sense of purpose, longer lives. That comes from five benefits of healthy relationships from Northwestern medicine. According to the University of Minnesota's taking charge of your health and well-being, the research is clear and devastating. Isolation is fatal. In our current social political climate, the issues of racism and slavery constantly come to our attention. The question we must answer is a difficult one. How will change occur? What has Christ called us to do? Is the church an instrument to change the city of man or is it it God's instrument to build the city of God? Please understand, I'm not saying that racism does not exist. I'm not saying that racism does not exist in the church. The question is rather, how may we effect The change is needed. In the book, Slavery, A World History, author Milton Meltzer makes the point that slavery has always existed, that degraded man to a thing has never died out. In some periods of history it has flourished. Many civilizations have climbed to power and glory on the backs of slaves. At other times, slaves have dwindled in number and economic importance. But never has slavery disappeared. Organizations such as the London-based anti-slavery society have been working for over 100 years now to end human bondage. Yet millions of men, women, and children, according to United Nations estimates, are still held in slavery in many countries. Slavery Today is a website devoted to ending modern-day slavery, and they report the following. There are tens of millions of people trapped in various forms of slavery throughout the world today. Researchers estimate that 40 million are enslaved worldwide, generating $150 billion a year in illicit profits for traffickers. There's labor slavery. Uh, where people work such as in farming, ranching, logging, mining, fishing, and brick making. And they're in service industries working as dishwashers, janitors, gardeners, and maids. There's sex slavery. About 12.5% are trapped in forced prostitution slavery. There's forced marriage slavery. About 37% are trapped in forced marriages. And then there's child slavery. It's about as high as about 25% of the slaves today, their children. Slavery is a hidden crime, making it harder for the public to see and for those in slavery to call, those against slavery to call out for help or those in it, trapped in it, to call out for help. That's today. And it's not related to race. What does slavery have to do with Relationships. Everything. Slavery existed and exists because people believe that other people are things to be used for profit. Prejudice existed and exists because people believe that other people are less than human. Prejudice crosses racial barriers. Whites are prejudiced toward all minorities. Blacks are prejudiced toward um, uh, others. Native Americans, Mexicans, they're all prejudiced. We all are. Each of us are prejudiced against one of somebody for some reason. But what's the problem? Why does prejudice reside in our hearts? Well, because of sin. And sin broke down the relationship. The problem of sin began in the garden, and people laugh at that today. But the fact is, we are all sinners and we're struggling. Why? Well, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, broken relationships began between God and man, man and his wife, and man and creation. Sin has wrought destruction. That reality persists to this day and it will not be resolved by protests, riots, or politics. Only Christ can, can repair the destructive power of sin. Sin. Again, I'm not saying to avoid protesting, though I am saying not to riot. Neither am I saying not to vote or not to write to your elected officials. What I am saying is that if the Gospel is the power of God into salvation, then preach the Gospel in season and out of season. As Paul suffered all things for the sake of the elect that they might be saved, then nothing less is placed upon our shoulders if relationships can only be restored through the Gospel, then that is where the energy of the church should be placed. G.K. Beale in his commentary writes, and I quote, Believing in Christ joins us to other believers in an intimate family unit within that new relationship which takes pride of place in all our relationships and dictates how those other relationships are to be lived out. We bear responsibilities for one another. It is those responsibilities that Paul spells out in this letter. This short private letter of Philemon then is an important reminder of the communitarian aspect of Christianity that many of us in our individualist cultures are so prone to forget. In Christ we belong to one another. We enjoy each other's company and support. And we are obliged to support to the point of sacrificing our own time, interest, and money for our brothers and our sisters. Wow. Well, in the body of the epistle to Philemon, Paul sets forth three relationships in his entreaty to Philemon. Paul's relationship to Philemon is grounded in the gospel. Paul's relationship to Onesimus is grounded in the gospel. And Philemon's relationship to Onesimus is grounded in the gospel. Now, I must be honest with you, though stated differently, the idea for these points came from a commentary by G.K. Beale in which he states, Overshadowing the issue of slavery in the letter is how the gospel transforms human relationships despite class or race distinctions. So then, we want to look at how Paul shows the relationship or points out that our relationships are grounded in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your love and your goodness to us. We pray now as we think about Paul's the body of Paul's letter to Philemon, that you would give us wisdom and insight into knowledge of your will. May we glorify you in all of our relationships and understand that the gospel changes, transforms our relationships, not only with those in the church, but with people in the world. For we no longer know any man according to the flesh, but we know them either as in Christ or out of Christ. And there is no distinctions in Christ. Give us wisdom, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, then, Paul's relationship to Philemon is grounded in the Gospel. He says, therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper... Yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul begins by saying, therefore, taking our attention back up to the context before because he had been talking about Philemon's love of the saints, refreshing the saints. And so he concludes from that that uh, therefore he's what he's asking Philemon to do is um, is following from his foundation of the refreshment that Philemon has given. Paul uses the word confidence. Now, according to my sources, that word has an interesting history and use. It was used in the past, uh, before Paul's time, in the f- political f- sphere, um, and it, uh, m- it referred to something was something that was important. Uh, as a presupposition of democracy, it was openness of communication. Something that even the—I uh, I read a, I put it on my Facebook this week. I, I put a link to it. But um, even some professors who are d- Democrats and liberals signed a document—not a real long one—but they signed a document. All these professors that we had to go back to the foundation of a society that is able to debate and discuss issues whether they agree with each other or not. Something that we're losing in our day. Well, that's how the word Paul uses there for confidence was used in the, in the past, in the politically. Second, there was a private sphere. Here, the main sense is that of frankness or candor. Um, if it's negative, it can be impudence or insolence or shamelessness. But in a positive sense, it's being able to talk openly with, with, your, with your spouse, say. It's being able to talk openly and frankly with one another. In the moral sphere, philosophers use the word um, with, with moral rather than political freedom. Uh, The word may denote shamelessness, but um, those who have confidence in that sense, in a good sense, they're usually public figures with cosmopolitan responsibilities. In other words, it's used to talk about the freedom that you have in society to speak. And that was a long time ago. But it also means something like openly. In the Gospel of John, for instance, we have Jesus Remember when he was before the high priest and he, he told them, he said, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. What does he say? He says, I've spoken openly. That's the same word that Paul uses when he says, I have Confidence in defending the healing that He did on the Sabbath, the people responded to Jesus. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this is not this the man they seek to kill? And here He is speaking openly. And they say nothing to Him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? John 7, 25 and 26. The word openly is the same word Paul uses here when he talks about confidence. Well, this is a good lesson for us. I want you to pay attention. How does the word move from the meaning openness and con- to the meaning confidence or courage? The connection seems clear. To speak with openness and candor does require confidence and courage. The, the, the original meaning merely is expanded to the idea of confidence. And that what I say is example of it's a good lesson for us. Word meanings change over time. Word meanings in the Old Testament are not necessarily the same as they are in the New Testament. So what do you have to do when you're studying your Bible? Well, you have to understand the context. Because the context determines ultimately what the word means, not what we import from the Old Testament to the New or what we import from the New to the Old. When we're doing word studies, we have to be careful that we pay attention to the context. And in this context, Paul may be in the background referring to openness. He's open. He's okay to do this. But reality is he has confidence. Confidence in what? Well, as we shall see, he does not appeal to his apostolic authority, though he mentions it, So his confidence is not in his apostolic authority. But even there, his apostolic authority rests not on himself, but upon Christ. And that's why he says that he has confidence in Christ. And all of your translations say, in Christ. And what you need to understand what that means, you need to understand what that means. It means that it's because of Christ. Because of the because of Christ's person and His work. That's what gives Paul confidence. What Christ has done for him. Yes, it would include his apostolic office, but he's not appealing to his apostolic office. He's appealing to Christ. Christ gives him the confidence to speak. If I go out in the street and let's say I preach the Gospel, I can't. if I have confidence in myself, do you know what's going to happen to me? Well, I'm going to... I'm gonna not it's not gonna work. If I talk to somebody else about Christ, let's say I talk to a friend about the Lord Jesus, where is my confidence gonna come from? Not from me, I don't have any confidence. I probably am the more I I as a pastor, I'm a person who doesn't have very much confidence at all. I get terrified when I'm around some people. So where does the confidence come from? Well, it comes from Christ because I'm in union with Christ, because Paul was in union with Christ, and because Christ called him, because what Christ has done, because of that, Paul has confidence to speak to Philemon. His authority is not the basis of his entreaty. It's Christ and Christ alone. Paul bolsters his request by stating that he is... Paul the Aged and now Prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, there's one version that says that, that uh, Paul is the Ambassador of Christ for Christ Jesus. Because the word he uses is, uh, is presbyter, which is related to presbyter, Presbyteros, which is related to Elder. So it could be that he's speaking about his authority as an elder in the church, right? We have elders in the church, and there's a sense in which we have authority. but I don't that's not what Paul means. He's really talking about his age. and uh, what he's saying is that he's he's an old man, and now, now as an old man, I'm even in prison. I'm even suffering for the sake of Christ Jesus. When he says that he's an old man in that sense, we actually know that he's probably at that time between 56 and 63 years old. So we know approximately what time of of Paul's life he wrote this epistle to Philemon. He's Paul the aged, who is not only the aged, he's also the prisoner because of Christ Jesus, or even for the sake of Christ Jesus. In other words, the point that Paul is making is that his imprisonment is not a consequence of any evil that he has done. If you're going to suffer, don't suffer because you've done wrong. I mean, what can I say if if Tim does something wrong at school and he suffers, am I going to I mean, I might feel bad, but the fact is it's his own fault. The Bible tells us this all the time. If we're going to suffer, then suffer as a Christian. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But what if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Again, in 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We're going to suffer, let us suffer, because we've done something right. Because that gives glory to God. Paul's appeal to Philemon is based on their common brotherhood in Christ. He appeals to him for love's sake. The fact that Paul may appeal to Philemon because of Christ testifies to their brotherhood. In verse 17, Paul indicates that Paul is his that Philemon is his partner. In verse 19, he indicates that Philemon owes Paul his very life. In verse 20, Paul calls Philemon his brother. Therefore, Paul's appeal to Philemon is grounded in the gospel. The gospel creates a relationship between people, it changes human relationships and restores them to what they should be. Granted, it's not perfect yet. But it will be one day. Right now, we are to work on that. We are brothers because we are members of the same family. Do you know that Christ is called our brother? Hebrews chapter 2, 11 and 12. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not. That is Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, "I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise." Again, for surely this is Hebrews two sixteen and seventeen. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he that is Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I want you to notice this. Sometimes when we read the word brothers, we think, well, what about sisters? What about sisters? Aren't they included? Well, yeah, because that's a general term, brothers, just like the general term people. Christ gives Christ becomes like his brothers to suffer for the sins of his people. We could say Christ becomes like his people that he might give his life for his people. It doesn't exclude sisters. It's just a way of speaking. In fact, some translations, what they do nowadays, because they want to include people, they say brothers and sisters, as they write as they when they translate Paul's epistles to the brothers and sisters in Colossae, or the brothers and sisters in Ephesians. Because the term brothers includes us all. We are all the people of God. Well, that brings us to the next point. Paul's relationship to Onesimus is grounded in the Gospel. So Paul's relationship to Philemon is grounded in the Gospel. Paul's relationship to Onesimus is also grounded in the Gospel. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, Whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be, in effect, by compulsion. But out of your own free will. Paul doesn't want to order Philemon to do this. And he has the authority to do that because he's an apostle. But he isn't going to do that. He wants to appeal to to him. He wants to beseech him. One translation even uses the word beg. He wants to beg him. I, I think that's a little, I don't think that's right. I think that's a little different, but. The idea of appealing or entreating, beseeching someone, um, that's what he wants to do. It implies persuasion. The word entreat implies persuasion. And so he entreats Philemon for Onesimus, meaning that the entreaty concerns Onesimus. At this point in the letter, he is not seeking the acceptance of Onesimus. That comes later. He's only talking about the one for whom the entreaty concerns now I want you to notice how Paul describes Onesimus. He does it in a fourfold way, and it, again it directs our attention to the gospel. First, he is the one begotten by Paul during Paul's imprisonment. Doesn't that sound strange? You know, I've begotten I've begotten Onesimus in my imprisonment. Don't we normally associate regeneration with the work of God? For example, in John 3, 7, and 8, Jesus says, Do not marvel what I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has caused us to be born again, but it's God's work. Again, 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding Word of God. So the Spirit of God begets us through the Word of God. I take that to mean the Gospel. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared in His love for mankind, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to His mercy. How? by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now Paul uses the word beget a lot of times and he's usually speaking of physical birth. But he also uses it to speak of spiritual birth. So we might ask, how is it that Paul could say that he begot uh, Onesimus while he was in prison? Well, 1 Corinthians 4.15 says, I believe gives us the answer. Paul says, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father, how? Through the Gospel. So it's through through the preaching of the Gospel that Onesimus is born again. And it's a work of the Spirit. Now, another good lesson for us. Got to pay attention to all these lessons. I'm trying to teach you. When I did what I just did, compared this scripture to that scripture, that is what is meant by scripture interprets scripture. What I talked to you about before was a word study. Word study is not scripture interpreting scripture, it's a word study. Scripture interpreting word scripture is when you have one passage that is not clear in its meaning. For example, Paul. I have begotten him in my imprisonment. Well, that's kind of that's strange. I, I don't quite get that. Well, let's see. Does there are there other passages well, we have another passage of scripture which clarifies the meaning. So when Paul indicates that he begot Onesimus, what he means is that through the preaching of the gospel, Onesimus was born again. And this is what the scripture teaches us. And so that's an example, I believe of taking Scripture to interpret Scripture. And that's what we need to do. That was a Reformation principle that we need to hold on to. Well, that's the first description. The second description that Paul gives of Nesimus is that he was formerly useless. But now, he is useful. Now, we know there are word plays, right? Have you all heard of word plays? You know what a word play is? There's word plays that are what you call homonymity, right? That's where words sound the same but they mean something different like um, horse and horse, right? There's horse that you ride on and there's a horse voice. They sound the same. And so you could use that as a word play. The other kind of word play is a synonymous word play where two words, different words, mean the same thing like horse and equine, right? Horse is a horse. Equine is a horse too. They both, they're both they different words. But both words mean the same thing. Well, Paul uses the, same, the second kind of a wordplay, a synonymous one. Onesimus' is name, his very name, means useless. How would you like if your mom, when you were born, instead of saying, I'm going to name you Timothy, she just decided, I'm going to name you useless. What? How would you feel about that? You'd grow up your whole life everybody saying, Hey, useless, come over here. You know, you kind of feel like, well, what is this? So so Paul says, well, you know, Onesimus was useless, but now he has become useful. So Onesimus, who mean, whose name means useless, who was formerly useless, has become Onesimus the useful. How was he useful? Well, He was useful to Paul in prison because he met Paul's needs. He helped him in some way. Paul describes Onesimus as the one whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf, that is Philemon's behalf, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Onesimus, as it were, stood in Philemon's place as he served Paul. Now, Philemon wasn't aware of that, but that's how Paul describes Onesimus' ministry. And this is a good example to us of God's providence. We've got to keep remembering how God works in people's lives. Opinions vary on how Paul and Onesimus actually came in contact with one another. Some say that Onesimus was sent by Philemon to minister to Paul's needs. Well, that may be one thing, that may be true, but it's hard to reconcile with Philemon going from being useless to being useful. Um, It doesn't make sense. Others believe that Onesimus was a runaway slave. And that's the most prevalent view. The question then is, well, how did Onesimus run into Paul in prison? If you think about it, if Paul's in Rome and Onesimus runs away, if he's a slave, he gets caught. He gets caught, where does he go? To prison. And he has to be returned to his master. In fact, he could be put... If you don't turn him in, he could be put to death. You could be put to death. Well, how did Onesimus run into Paul? What did he get put in the same cell if Paul's in Rome? And Paul really wasn't in a cell in Rome. He was in a private residence, at least according to Acts 28. Well, if Paul was in Ephesus where he was imprisoned, then maybe Onesimus got thrown in in jail with him and, and he ran into Paul that way. Or if Paul was in Caesarea for the imprisonment, and those are the three views, by the way, of Paul's location, well, then Onesimus ran into him in prison. My opinions, personally, change as I read what others have said. That's how really fixed I'm on this. I really got this nailed down. I know exactly what Onesimus, how it happened. No, I don't. Nobody does. But one thing I do know, no matter how Onesimus ran into Paul, guess what? He ran into Paul, right? No matter how they got together, where Paul was, what the circumstances were, Paul and Onesimus got together. How how did that happen? Because you have a sovereign God who works in His creatures and in their actions to bring about His purposes for His glory. That's what providence means. Now, there's nothing wrong with us being curious, but let's rest in our sovereign God. we, You know, let God satisfy our curiosity. Onesimus was useful to Paul, and when when Philemon receives Onesimus back, the relation to them will be different. Yes, Onesimus will still be a slave, most likely, but he will be more than a slave. He will be a brother to Philemon. And God is the one. <laughs> this is what's amazing. God is the one that put them together. We should never be disturbed by our circumstances. Do you know why? Because God is working in your life. Do you believe that? Yes. See, God was working in on Onesimus' life. He probably didn't even know it at the time because he wasn't a Christian. But God knew what He was doing. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy for us. It's not easy to live life, guys. I'm telling you, young people, listen. You have a great you know, time in your life right now as you're young. And, and you, have all your, you have all the opportunities and, and everything before you. You have all kinds of hopes and dreams, don't you? You have dreams about what you would like to be and do? What if it doesn't work out? Well if it doesn't work out, are you gonna be discouraged and distraught and give up? No, you're gonna keep going. Why? Because you serve a God who works in all of your in all of your life. No matter how difficult it is. You know, people who are brought into slavery, they're trafficked, you know, they're brought in through sometimes South America. Sometimes women are duped in, in Europe to give people their passports, they're brought to Mexico somewhere, and then they're sold into slavery sent into the United States, and they become slaves of other people. Well, does God not know that? If God is sovereign and He serves us and He takes care of us through His providence, then we need to rest in that. Because to be honest, life's not easy. Life's not easy at all. It's, It's very difficult sometimes. And I'm finding that out more and more as I go through my life. Well, the third description Paul provides is that Onesimus is Paul's own heart. What does he mean by that? Think of that. He's my own heart. I'm sending him back to you. I'm send- when I send Onesimus back to you, it's like I'm sending you my own heart. Well, talk about new relationships in Christ. Have you ever felt so close to one another whether it's brother or sister, that you could actually say that? Are you so close to me in this church that you could say, I'm, I'm your heart? Can I say that of Tim or Emma or Mercy or Micah? Can I? That you're my very heart? Sadly, the pain comes through people letting us down. They hurt us deeply. And it hardens us from getting too close. Too many times in the church, relationships are as close as any relationship can be outside of marriage. But when those relationships break, it hurts very much. You know that when when people leave our congregation, and they have... It hurts. Excuses for leaving are without limit. But whatever they are, relationships are fractured. One of the things that we've wrestled with as we talked about dissolution in this congregation was that very thought. That we are relayed, the relationships that we have with each other yes. would no longer exist yes. because this family would go over here and this family would go over here. And my family would go over there. And we would say, oh, well, we'll see each other. We'll get together. No, we won't. It won't be the same. Yeah. And it hurts. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think Paul means when he says that Nesimus is very hard. He doesn't want to let him go. So that's the third description Paul provides. And then the fourth one is this. Paul offers us regarding Onesimus that he is one whom Paul wanted to keep with him. Onesimus was useful to Paul in prison and Paul wanted him to stay. However, the situation demanded that Paul return him. Roman law would require Onesimus to return to his master. Now, Roman law did not specify that Philemon could not send Paul back or send Onesimus back to Paul to serve him. He he could. That was his business. He could have ordered Philemon... Paul could have ordered Philemon to allow Onesimus to stay, but he didn't. What Paul does is to appeal regarding his relationship to Onesimus as defined by the Gospel. Because of the Gospel, the relationship between slave and free has been abolished. In Christ there is no distinction. Distinction. Paul desires Philemon to understand that the gospel changes relationship. And the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon, uh, between master and slave, has been abolished. And Onesimus is helping Paul. He's useful to him. He's Paul's own heart. And he doesn't want to let him go. Would that we would all look at each other and describe each other as Paul has described Onesimus. Well that brings us to the third and final point to consider and that is Philemon's relationship to Onesimus is grounded in the law. So it started with Paul. Paul's relationship with Philemon, Paul's relationship to Onesimus now Philemon's own relationship to Onesimus is grounded in the gospel. For verse 15 perhaps He was for this reason separated from you for a while that you could have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Ah, think of that. Paul offers Philemon a situation. Some people call this a divine passive. Um, You can't really get that from the grammar. It's a theological interpretation, okay? The grammar is just a passive. Perhaps he was, um, he was. Uh, how does it go? Perhaps he was separated from you. That's passive. He was something was done to him, and so who separated him from Philemon? Well, ultimately, sure, it's God. God's providential control over things. Um, but Philemon, but Onesimus is the one that ran away, so Onesimus can't say, "Well." It was God's fault that I took off. No, He can't do that. But we can say that God works in providence when people make decisions. It's like I can't even I can't even explain it clear. But as God is make when people are making decisions, they're making decisions on their of their own accord that God wants done. That doesn't mean that you're puppets. You're not puppets. But God is at work. So. Paul presents this contingency to Philemon, ranging somewhere between probability and bare possibility. Perhaps, possibly, maybe. Maybe this is why Onesimus was separated from you, so that you might have him back. Imagine, if you will, that your slave Onesimus has been separated from you, The manner in which that came about is irrelevant for this very purpose. He was separated from you for for the purpose of bringing him to Christ so that he might be returned to you as a brother. And Paul is clear about the purpose. He does not say that Onesimus is no longer a slave. Rather, he is more than a slave. It's like Paul said something like, Sure, receive him back as a slave. After all, you own him. You purchased him. He's yours. But realize this, Philemon. When you receive him back, you receive him back fully and forever because, dear brother, you receive more than a slave. You receive a brother in Christ. You receive him back as a family member. He, His brother is Christ, as is your brother Christ. Slavery is a social institution that the world caught that the world caught in sin utilizes for its own empowerment and enrichment. But you receive a brother in Christ. Not only will Onesimus be with you here to serve you as well as a Christian, but you will spend eternity in the presence of the Lord and yours, His Lord and yours. Now that's something great. See, that's why why Onesimus is separated so that Paul can, re- I mean, can receive him back not only as a slave, but as someone who will be not only part of his life right here and right now, but in glory he'll be part of his life too. Do you understand that? Do we appreciate that? I'll tell you what, kids. I'm closer to death more than likely than any of you. Right? Hopefully, pray to God, I'll go before you do. And you'll put me in the ground. Right? But I'll be in Glory. And I'm going to hope when I go that I'll be there with you. Yes. That's that's my hope. That we'll stand there together. Our little group. Be yes. Albuquerque Reformed Church. Here's the Albuquerque Reformed Church. What are you doing? We're praising God. We're having fellowship with one another. And better than all, we're the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're with Christ. Yes. That's something to live for. Life is going to end. I watched... I watched someone die, okay? I was with my father till the very end. It happens. You have to let go. You have to say goodbye. But it's not goodbye. It's, what's that word? See you, um, see you later. It's never just goodbye. That's what Paul is telling Ones- uh, the Philemon. This guy is not just a slave, Philemon. He's more than that. And Paul further emphasizes this point by saying that Onesimus is Philemon's brother, but he is Paul's brother too. Well, how is Onesimus more of a brother to Paul in the flesh? Well, remember, Paul is a prisoner. In that sense, Onesimus and he share much in common. They're both in prison. Neither have rights. In fact, as a Roman citizen, Paul actually enjoys rights that Onesimus doesn't have. But he's still Paul's brother. Paul is able to identify with Onesimus as chains because Paul too is in change. and as being in the being close to him in the flesh, in that sense, gives him gives him some gives him uh, some persuasiveness that Onesimus doesn't have. As a matter of fact, all of us know what slavery means, do we not? Slavery is horrible bondage, but spiritual slavery is worse. Its grip is more debilitating than human bondage. As a human slave, you will die once. Remember that. No matter what happens, you can only die one time. Oh sure, they can make you hurt and... You know they can give you a lot of pain, people can do that. But you only die one time in this life. But but being a spiritual slavery, you don't just die once. You die twice. Spiritual death is eternal weeping and gnashing of the teeth. In hell relationships are never restored. <laughs> Hell is like hell is a never ending broken relationship with God and other people. But in Christ, you see all relationships are restored. That restoration begins here and is completed in glory. Well, as we conclude then, let me say. I wish that all Christians would understand the truth of Philemon. The book is not about slavery pro or con. It's about the restoration of relationships in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are all brothers and sisters. In Christ, we are all family. It's so important for us to catch this truth because, in doing so, we honor Christ and manifest the glory of the gospel to the world around us. And I have to say, sadly, the church has not manifested this reality on a large scale. We have practiced some of the worst treatment. Of human beings, the world has ever known. And it doesn't matter that the church has done right, she has done many things right. But the world only sees what she's done wrong. Remember that. Slavery marks the church as unfaithful and inhuman. And when the church supported slavery in the South, it demonstrated unfaithfulness and inhumanity. Racial prejudice marks the church as unfaithful and inhuman. But the answer is not political because you, you cannot, you can force external, you can force somebody to do something externally. But if the heart is changed and there is love, then all those things fall away. No, the answer, the only answer to man's humanity to man is the gospel. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do thank you for Paul's. Words to Philemon. We pray that they would be inculcated in our lives each day, that we would see one another not just even as brothers and sisters in the flesh, though some of us are that, but more than that, as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's hard for us to embrace but we pray, our God, that you would open our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit and so work in us that the reality of which Paul speaks would become a reality for each of us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.